Well, thank you for for talking to us. Uh, so I think was worth saying this this conversation is going to be largely centered around wild animal suffering and uh, the problem of evil. Um, you know, the existence of God. I know that you're obviously an atheist creator and you've talked uh, to, to Michael Humer. You've you've done some interesting videos on on wild animal suffering and you're also a vegetarian uh, and I'm a vegan. So, you know, there is like, w w uh, you, you say you're an aspiring vegan. So I'm assuming you do care about animals and so that this is obviously going to be uh, largely about whether animals, you know, you know, the existence of animal suffering and its coherence with an omnibenevolent God um and so let's just sort of jump straight into that um so what is it about like obviously like to kind of we'll probably have to unpack a lot of stuff but what is it about wild animal suffering that you find like irksome or troublesome with the existence of a, an omnibenevolent creator yeah well i mean first of all thank you for having me um it's uh it's good to be here and, and talking about this subject and i'm glad that i don't have to uh convince your viewers that animals matter morally speaking you know like their <laughs> suffering is something that can't be dismissed or treated as irrelevant um but yeah i mean something that i say often is that the kind degree and distribution of animal suffering is i think pretty unambiguously evidenced against theism um so when i say the kind of animal suffering i'm talking you know for instance about teleological evil where you have natural systems you know that cause suffering in virtue of their natural purpose or design plan. Like it's not a perversion of nature. It's not like a, you know, an unfortunate byproduct. It's like predators, physical and psychological attributes are like aimed at causing suffering and they're not moral agents, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of thing I think is surprising. Like if there weren't any teleological evil, that would help the case for theism. Um, and then with the, uh, so that would be an example of the kind of suffering I see that it's, that seems problematic, or at least if it didn't exist, that would help, you know, theism. Um, there's also just the sheer degree of suffering. Like there's a great, um, quote from Richard Dawkins in River Out of Eden, where he says like the total amount of suffering in the natural world per year is just beyond all decent contemplation. You know, you consider like the parasitism and the predation and just, yeah, the fear and suffering and disease and so on. Um, you know, so there's just there's such a this incomprehensible amount of animal suffering that's just, you know, being visited upon these confused sentient creatures. And it just didn't have to be that way. There didn't have to be millions upon millions upon millions of years of uh, of this kind of suffering. And then just the distribution of suffering, you know, like pain and pleasure seem to be um, distributed like according to evolutionary goals. You know, like if you think about the circumstances under which animals feel pain, and the circumstances under which they feel pleasure, it seems pretty explicable according to natural selection. You know, like it, it, you know, it's adaptive to feel pain in this circumstance. It's adaptive to feel pleasure in that circumstance. But, um, you know, the thing is like natural selection is totally amoral, you know? So like once you say that, yeah, the pain and pleasure in the natural world in the animal kingdom seems distributed along what you'd predict according to evolutionary biology. Well, that is just to say that there's no moral distribution to the pain and pleasure in the in the animal kingdom. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if there were a morally intelligible distribution of pain and pleasure, like if there was if pain was distributed according to who would learn the most from it or, you know, who deserves it or something. But it, that's not it. You know, it's it's pretty clearly explicable through evolutionary theory. And um, yeah. you change any of these things and it helps the case for theism. 
you know, so, I mean, just to briefly allude to some probability theory, like if some fact about our world is evidence for a hypothesis, then it follows that the negation of that is evidence against that hypothesis. So if E is evidence for H, then not E is evidence against H. Um, so I think pretty obviously all these things I've mentioned, like if they didn't obtain, that would help the case for theism. And the reason I mention that is because, you know, it just follows that the fact that they do obtain is evidence against theism. So I feel like the question of whether the kind degree and distribution of animal suffering is evidence against theism, it seems like kind of a trivial question because um, just following from that probability theorem, like if E is evidence for H, then it follows that not E is evidence against H. You know, it just seems pretty obvious that like, you know, if we if we observed something different in the world, theists would cite that as evidence for theism and they would be right to do so. You know, so the fact that we fail to observe, um, you know, kind of the converse of these of these facts about our world I've been alluding to, you know, that actually is evidence against theism. Yeah, I mean, that was actually really interesting. I think it's 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 funny because I think we agree largely on like the state of nature, like, for example, the distribution of pain and pleasure has been um, sort of evolutionarily dispersed. Um, a, a sort of teleological account of that in relation to Darwinian, Darwinian sort of uh, natural selection. Um, although I guess I wouldn't boil it down to Darwin. Um, and I th certainly don't think that Darwin, I don't know if whether you would, he would agree that it's teleological um, uh, or, or you, in, that, in the same respect, but I, I would certainly argue it, it is. Um, I think that the, the point you made about the evidence that I will say the only thing I think I massively disagree on like obviously there's there's the point of whether this necessarily goes against the existence of a Christian God in, in the first place but but in the sense that the evidence of um but not e would be evidence uh against uh, I, I don't think that logically follows because it would it would simply not be evidence for um you would have to say the negation of like as in like it would have to be they, that it, it would have to be evidenced for the for for the, for the contrary it would have to be a contrary theory so it's like if i was to prove the negation i wouldn't go um so if like so for example like the um i don't know let's say evidence evidence of uh i don't know the presence of fire would be um haven't be haven't been like let's say fossilized ash or something let's say if i'm talking about prehistoric man uh like i'm like fo like fossilized i don't know if that would even make sense let's say that let's say the evidence of something like fiber in a diet or something we like you know fossilized like fibrous tissues in um in uh in our feces and then let's say i don't find that that wouldn't be evidence that fiber wasn't in their diet it simply wouldn't be evidence that fiber was in their diet uh, if if that makes sense, so the absence of evidence wouldn't necessarily lead to us to, to affirm the the contrary. Well, um, I think the key there is that the strength of the evidence is not symmetrical. So E can be evidence for H, and it it does just follow. It's 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 like it does follow that not E is evidence against H, but the strength of that evidence doesn't have to be equal and opposite. So it's not like E is like you know X strength of evidence for for right. this hypothesis, and then like not yep. E is equally strong you know against it. Okay, sorry, my audio cut out there, so I missed the start of that. Um, um, just to just to so, so could you just repeat that? I didn't. I, I was trying to say like I'm sorry, my audio cut out, but I did. I, <laughs> but sorry. No, no. It's, um. So like, 
uh, if E is evidence for H, then not E is evidence against H. That doesn't entail that the strength of the evidence is sort of equal and opposite. Um, so it's not like, okay, E would be evidence for H to like, you know, X degree. And that means that not E is evidence against H also to X degree. That's not what I'm saying. So it's not like right. the, um, you know, our failure to observe something would be equally strong evidence as it would be. So there are, you know, all kinds of examples, all kinds I'm, of examples of that yeah. where, yeah, something would be evidence for theism, but its absence is not like crazy evidence against theism. Right. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm not even sure if it is evidence against as much as it's a, a lack of evidence for, which may entail like a, a like a, like a lower probability. Like you might be, say, oh, okay, like it, it shows that this is less probable because the, the you know, like for example, you, you'd say that we would expect to find evidence uh, for this, but I don't know if it would, it would entail it being the contrary. Although I don't know if that makes that much of a difference. I'm just sort of, I, I just don't, I, I guess I don't, know whether that would be the the way to look at it anyway but i guess that i guess the thing is it, it makes no real difference anyway because i'm going to say that i think that what you've described anyway isn't necessarily um teleological evil um so and I, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably where where you'd be saying like you should expect some sort of teleological good uh, and so the absence of that teleological good is an indication of of the problem is that, is, that, is that sort of right? No, I mean, I think there are systems in nature that are aimed at, you know, producing good things, like just in virtue of their natural purposes and design plan. And when I say design plan, I don't mean it in this like teleological way necessarily. Oh. Like I, I could mean it in a teleonomic way where, you know, because Darwinists can still talk about quote unquote design, you know, what things are for. They have these functions, but they just don't mean it the same way that like a real teleologist would believe you know, that things have functions and purposes. So they mean it in sort of a more metaphorical way. And I'm trying to use it in a neutral way, even though I do actually think there's teleology in nature. But um, no, I think there's a mix of teleological good and evil in the right. world. Like there are natural systems that are aimed at producing good things just in virtue of their natural purposes. And I also think there are systems in nature that are aimed at producing suffering. You know, that just seems like totally pointless. Like the best example is predation, where a predator's psychological attributes and their physical attributes, like their sharp teeth and claws, like they're not misusing their claws, you know, like predators are not like misusing their teeth. Um, they're like, that's what those are for, you know? Um, and that's kind of what I'm saying is like, we see this mixture of good and ill and, you know, indifference makes sense of that. Like if, if we're just, you know, kind of hurtling along here, according to evolutionary processes that don't really have any regard for good or evil then yeah why wouldn't you expect some teleological evil and some teleological good but if fundamental reality is caring you know it's like it's this theistic god this like being that's unlimited in power and goodness well i mean like what about that would lead you to expect the kind degree and distribution of animal suffering and moreover it would obviously help the case for theism if there weren't teleological evil and if there weren't this you know, degree and distribution of animal I'm suffering. So sure. I'm not so sure. I want to, I think that the, the, the thing is, I, I guess I, I don't think it's teleological evil. I don't think suffering is teleological evil. I think, it, I mean, it is the lack of flourishing in some respects, but like, it's not that it's teleologically designed, like aimed towards something evil, which I guess really raises the point of like what we take good and evil to be, because I take good and evil to be directly correspondent to a, a, a telos, uh, a function and so good and bad are actually degrees of satisfying the function 
rather than than necessarily like some sort of i don't know i'm not sure if you like you would be like a non-naturalist or something like where there is or, or a naturalist necessarily where you would say like there is good as a, as a moral property or, or, or something mm-hmm. where, where i see it as um i don't think goodness is separate from actually the, a practice uh, an ongoing attempt to actualize a, a form if you will right or, or like to actualize an identity and so when we see that this sort of teleological behavior, like pain and pleasure are, are, aren't necessarily goods in themselves. They're indications for an animal's behavior in order for them to achieve the, the goal or the end, which isn't necessarily a state of satisfaction, um, but it, rather, than, rather than obtain an identity and, and you know, pr- pr- proliferate their identity through time, whether it's through reproduction, you know, um, like, um, uh, like, a uh, food consumption of food you know drinking water avoidance of certain like uh deadly uh scenarios let's say predators and so on and then predators i think that you know like if you look at they are using their you know sort of anatomy correctly in order to do the exact same thing and then all of this really intermediates sorry intermediates interlocks in such a way as to create a an environment that is incredibly robust and capable of um continuing and proliferating identity through time or, or life through time uh, and and it seems that it, it's sort of i don't think of this as like well we we would expect less suffering if god cared about us if the goal was the elimination of suffering if the absolute elimination of suffering yes i, I would expect that i would also expect them to 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 um you know not create sensitive creatures at all um because that just seems like you've just created the very thing you're looking to avoid um but what i expect really is if this if this is about the actualization of a perfectly stable logical identity and that this is and that identity is to be something which wills itself right essentially in what you know god is willing himself through all of eternity you know in the kind of thomistic view then the then I, I think nature is exactly what i would expect it to be it's robust it can get you know you can you can smack an asteroid into it kill 99 percent of life on earth and it still bounces back it it, it 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 it's it's incredible and and even with the way in which it seems to evolve um it doesn't seem like i think we used to think that it was this process in which it was actually really difficult for life to evolve and we're very special and blah you know like uh but in fact it, it doesn't seem i mean don't be wrong earth still holds this like sort of relevance today and the only um place we know life actually exists but we've found amino acids that are you know being space bound and stuff so we, we, we can see that the mechanisms which produce life um sort of teleologically are, are present throughout the, the 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 universe and not just yeah and it's not some sort of um like we're the only hope um and and i think that that's really what it comes down to i guess like i don't see it one as teleological evil because it's it is the fulfillment of natural purpose in in the animals are, are all attempting to fulfill a natural purpose and in doing so they are self-actualizing themselves to better or worse degrees um uh, and I think that a lot of the time, these natural mechanisms, in reference to the teleology of nature itself, you know, and and and, and Thomas Thomas Aquinas talks about this in terms of uh, the the sort of satisfaction was to bring glory to God, right? You know, essentially like to to sort of fulfill a divine mandate, which is I think this proliferation of identity. I think that it, it does an incredibly good job at that. 
which is why we see like mechanisms like natural selection, where it is like it, it, uh, life is evolving in complexity to become better and better and more well suited to its environment, to be better and better at, pro uh, at uh, proliferating its identity, to pass on its DNA and and survive and adapt in more and uh, more harsh and more um, rigor uh, rigorous or, or like volatile environments and so on. So I, I don't know. I, 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 so I'm, I'm hesitant to say we would expect a, a different distribution of pain and pleasure as the reason for this being teleologically evil. When in fact, I think the distribution of pain and pleasure is exactly what I would expect from an environment, from an from a, a creation that's seeking to express a telos that isn't just the satisfaction of a given being or, or, or specific beings, but rather the proliferation of an identity, if that makes sense. Right. Well, there are a few different arguments um, that I was alluding to um, earlier. And yeah, the distribution of suffering is one argument. The argument from teleological evil is a separate argument. And then I was also just referencing like the degree, like just the incomprehensible amount of suffering that's taken place. Um, but none of that implies that the goal is to like eliminate suffering totally. Um, nothing I've said implies that like maybe God would just get rid of all stuff. There would just be no suffering in a world where God existed. Like I'm allowing for the possibility that there could be suffering, you know, on theism. Um, but there are certain kinds of suffering, you know, that there are certain th facts about suffering that are less expected on theism. Um, and you can tell because if things were different, you know, that would help the case for, the for theism. If there was a very clear, like morally intelligible pattern to the distribution of suffering, as opposed to a distribution of suffering that is see, that seems primarily guided by natural selection, um, that would obviously not hurt the case for theism. You know, if the world was more morally intelligible, um, I'm also I'm a little surprised to hear you say something that sounds kind of sympathetic to like natural law theory um, as a vegan, because <laughs> it's very hard to um, make like a well, natural law theory sort of case for veganism because it's you know I, I mean it's it's obviously pretty natural like to uh to be a predator you know or, or to eat other animals um and what i'm saying i mean let me put it this way like god could have created creatures such that we were all herbivores naturally or scavengers or that we absorb energy without having to uh you know <laughs> eat other animals like you know that could have been a world that god could have actualized you know and i'm saying that that would actually help the case for theism if there was a world with no predation that would be better that would be a better world like the thing is, is that I guess, I guess I would probably, I don't want to say I disagree or or agree on that because I, I don't really know what a better world would look like. I, it's kind of, I think, I just want to sort of really point out that we we don't really know what would have been better or worse. Like when we talk about the, you know, whether this is the greatest of all possible worlds, right? Like, because that's really it, isn't it? Whether this is the greatest of all possible worlds. It's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I, I like to think that God would actualize the greatest of all possible worlds and that this is a meaningful existence. I would like to, I'd like to concord with Leibniz. Um, but I simply don't have the, the, the capacity to imagine um, a universe in its entirety from a teleological perspective, 
Uh, do, do, do you know what I mean? I think that that that, that is can, part of I the can mystery. Imagine a world without uh, predation. I mean, yeah, like, you could imagine maybe... a world without predation, but could you imagine like a world in which the the you know the the conclusion of this world is uh, you know the ex uh, like absolute freedom? Because this is this is where I think like maybe we don't agree. Where I don't think suffering is evil. I don't think that it is evil. That's not what I, th I think. Unfreedom is evil. I think unreason is evil. And I, I think that it's that that that's the difference. I think you, you when when we look towards something like pleasure and pain, I think they are kind of goods and bads, but they are only good and bad in relation to sort of the achievement or success of a goal in the first place, an evolutionary goal which seems to be inherent within all physical organisms, but that they map or supervene onto that, uh, and it's not necessarily good or bad in of, in and of itself, if that makes sense. So, so when you're making the case for mm -hmm. veganism, do you ever reference the suffering that is, you know, brought about, you know, by factory farming? Yeah, I do. I, I say I think Why? unnecessary. It's not bad. Um, well, it's not bad. It's not bad in and of itself. Like I don't think suffering is bad in and of itself. I I I think that suffering, unnecessary suffering, shows that we are denying or disrespecting the 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 teleology of another being. Uh, like the, like so, for example, if you look at um, like in in Thomas Aquinas as well. It is our goal to, like, so for example, we have the flourishing of man. You know, the flourishing of the individual finds itself in the flourishing of man, right? You know, we 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 seek to proliferate the universal good, but the universal good of man isn't the only good that exists universally. There is the good of nature, and so our place in nature is to, for example, be the stewards of nature, and so the 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 goal of nature is to bring glory to God, and we have a place in nature. We aren't the only things that matter. And I think that the what I have a problem with isn't necessary. It, it's the anthropocentrism. It's why are we the only things that matter? Uh, why are we giving humans? Like we would say it's wrong to murder people, and you can make a natural law case. It's wrong to murder, torture, and harm other human beings, and you that, that holds up fine. And you don't have to relate it straight to suffering. You could say like because it it denies the teleology of those beings. Um, same thing for animals. But we don't do that because we look at animals as if they are lesser and we are superior. And that's that's me main me main problem. Okay. Um well I I mean I do think it would be a better world if people were herbivores naturally. Like I don't really see the point of setting it up so that creatures even want to, or why it's so nutritionally rewarding or rewarding in terms of pleasure to eat the flesh of other creatures. It just seems like obviously god had options he could have actualized some alternative without losing the good of animals it's a good thing that animals exist and that humans exist and um you can even say that like okay i'm not talking about eliminating all suffering but like it would be better if we didn't get nutritionally rewarded and rewarded in terms of pleasure and other you know non-moral agents as well for eating other animals like again we could have been herbivores or we could have been scavengers or we could absorb energy through some other process that doesn't involve eating each other and i just think that would be a better word that would be evidence for theism you know if there was some if there was uh you know not the kind of evil you know not the kind of animal suffering that we witness in the natural world well i'm, I'm not sure about that because i think we'll have to be driven i think the drives that exist i see what you're saying like i'm not even like i understand and i understand why like you would even make that argument I'm just not convinced necessarily that it would would be that way and and why we would necessarily think that way like what would make it the like I guess my question would be like what would make it a a better possible world because what we're juggling more than just let's say the, the you know when we when we talk about how 
nature is structured and how it engages with itself. And we talk about this, you know, the the what I would say the, the good is, is this flourishing, this freedom, the attempt to will itself. It, would, would it be better set up to do such a thing if there was more, uh, if there was less suffering and more pleasure, or if there was, you know, if we use different mechanistic, if we, if there was different mechanisms within life to absorb energy, for example, um, like, for example, like if we look at like, sort of the vegetative, you know, like, you know, like Aristotle, you know, the, the vegetative soul and, and so on, and, and, you know, how plants absorb, uh, and so on, it doesn't seem to be driven outwards. And that seems to be an important point that it, it doesn't, it, it and I know I'm not really making a biological case here. I'm not. I'm. I, I, I'm just trying to imagine whether you know we could try and imagine a kind of plant people, but whether it's whether that actually ends up making sense in terms of the way in well, which. Well, I mean, we're talking about an omnipotent God. He could make it. He could set up the laws of nature so we get whatever energy we apparently need. Um, you know, without these specific processes, like, I mean, I feel like you're in a weird position because you want human beings to be herbivores. But you're not you're not seeming to acknowledge that like it would be a better world if we were just if we were all herbivores or if like you know all of nature was it just didn't it just didn't involve you know eating other things like eating other creatures you know I don't want humans to be herbivores like I don't want them to be herbivores I want them to be vegans and I think that's the difference like there is a rational acceptance yeah. like the, the the difference would be like for example you know in a survival situation you may be very glad you're not a herbivore. Um, and I don't think there'd be necessarily anything immoral. Like, so for example, if you, you know, and the plane crashes in the Andes, you've got to eat someone who's already dead or something like that. Being a herbivore in that situation may be a really bad, really bad outcome. Yeah. Really I mean, that outcome. would be like scavenging though, you know? And yeah. Then, like, it, it's but, still I mean, that, that'd be vegan. It'd be vegan. Right. But it wouldn't be, but it wouldn't be herbivorous. And so like, I think that I don't want. I don't want to say that humans should be herbivores. I don't want to say that I would necessarily. I plan on genetic, like you know, like it would be my goal to be like a transhumanist who genetically engineered humans so that we couldn't eat meat, so it stop people from procuring it. What I want is rational moral agency. I want people to accept the responsibility towards nature and see that yes, you can eat meat, but you should not. And I, and 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 that's not. And in many ways, I think that this, the you know, the way in which nature interacts with itself. Is it, it's an important way for like I, I would say that like this recognition in nature in relation to pain and pleasure, this this recognition of pain and pleasure is only is the means in which we come to recognize nature as part of ourselves. Like that we recognize other beings as part of ourselves. We see vulnerability, then we re realize that it is valuable, and we and we perceive the value in others. Um, and we and it allows us to perceive the value in ourselves and and express freedom in new and different ways. That that's like that that's what I'm really interested in. I'm not really interested in let's say just eliminating, um, you know, suffering abstractly. And and I think that the problem is is that when you start talking about what if nature was like X, Y, or Z in relation to the proliferation of something like freedom and self um self-actualization I, I mean what reason do we have to believe that a world with less suffering would be better would be a more free world um i mean i could very easily imagine that like you know kind of like nozick's experience machine where we become essentially enslaved to to pleasures we're unmotivated we're not 
actually move towards self-actualization in a meaningful way. Instead, we break from reality and we break from self-actualization and indulge in uh, whatever sort of God-given grace that would then lead us away from our own freedom, a kind of paradise, but a one which is unfree. Uh, so like, uh, I, I don't think that this is like, I, I, I see what you're saying and I can see why you would think that this goes against theological conceptions of, of, you know, well, like how wild animal suffering could go against the idea of an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. But what I'm really saying is that God loves us enough not to just give us pleasure or to diminish pain, but to give us the correct environment so that we gain the opportunity to, to proliferate our identities, to become free. Um, I'm not sure what that has to do with like, you know, hundreds of millions of years of animals, you know, languishing and, you know, predating on each other and, um, uh, you know, being killed by parasites or forest fires or something. Like, I don't see how that's connected at all. But I mean, like, why not? I mean, look at it like this. Like, like I, I would go so far as to say, like, I would agree with Hegel's sort of idea of the philosophy of nature. And that this is all sort of identity relations, like logical identity relations. And it seems to me that the way that the natural world is set up is a constant attempt to gain a more stable identity. Um, and so like when you see things like forest fires, like even something like people often point towards things like volcanoes as like such abstract evil, right? Like, a, 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 you know, a, a bunch of animals get caught in a volcanic eruption. But if it wasn't for the existence of te plate tectonics, obviously animals wouldn't exist at all. Uh, you know, they, they, there would be nothing, this, this, this world would be barren like Mars. So it, it's kind of like we often point towards the you sort think, of... Wait, do you think that's a problem for an omnipotent god? Yeah, I, I don't think that's He's limited God by can... tectonic plates. Like he couldn't think... have brought about life if it weren't for there has, have, there has to I be think... volcanoes because God couldn't have brought about life. Yeah, I don't think that like God, like I think there are logic. I think when we talk about a sequence of events in relation to sort of mechanistic laws, which would be established at the beginning of creation. So let's say like, you know, things like gravitational constants, things like that. Um, you know, the the possible logical relations between identities, there are limitations there. Like you, you might be omnipotent, but there are logical relations between identities that necessarily need to be maintained. Yeah, sure, um, but that doesn't bear on um, nomological eruptions. laws, if you will. No, but like volcanic eruptions, it's like you, it's like how would you go about? Where you just sort of like in terms of how creation, like I maybe like if you think creation works in the sense that you just sort of poof and then the you know things change and just sort of magically appear in a way that's um you know like perf already sort of the way they get you know in in a certain way uh but i, I don't think it, it's it, it's like that I, I think that the way creation works is the it, it is a is the proliferation of a of a of a universe capable of essentially fulfilling a teleological end and that teleological end has to be logically coherent from its beginning to its end. And so it's not like you you, you can't just go or starting at the end. I don't think that would necessarily necessarily work because you're not you haven't really laid like the maybe the the sort of logical relations that would mean that you would have, let's say, uh the possibility of like 
animals or humans actually having flourishing of having goods it's it sort of like like it's the establishment of these goods in creation and i think that 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 necessitates our sort of nomological structure it's like i, I don't know what let's say like good would look like in a different universe did you know do you know what i mean or what goodness and it would look like in a different universe in which it was logically structured ra radically differently I, I i wouldn't even know how to deal with that because the way in which I see it is in relation to the functions which we not we we already sort of naturally see, right? Like the sort of proliferations of identities. And I think when we talk about like what are the alternative ways to construct a, a universe, I, I I don't know. Like, could we have the same universe with without plate tectonics, volcanic eruptions, and and you know like the physical laws work the same as to allow for the same sort of identity relations, which may be necessary for for the sort of fulfillment of that teleological goal i i, I, don't, I don't really have the answer for that more than anything do, do you know what i mean it, it would it would go beyond my capacity i think um that david hume had a passage in part 11 of the dialogues that's um came to mind um when you were when you're talking about like well could we really change this one part you know of nature and sort of keep these other good things like maybe this is all kind of interconnected in a way where you can't have this good stuff without you know these prior things and like it just kind of comes as a, as one causal web um i don't have the quote in front of me but it's something about an architect who builds this terrible mansion that's like it's just confusing and loud and like they're the he talks about the extremes of heat and cold and you know it's just an awful awful um <laughs> structure and um He's like, the architect would in vain display his subtlety to you, showing like, well, if I change this, then like greater ills will ensue. And he's like, what he's saying might, strictly speaking, be true. But like his ignorance of a plan, of a, of a better plan overall, or your own ignorance even of a plan overall, is never going to convince you of the impossibility that if the architect had greater skill and knowledge and ability, that he could have built a better mansion. You know, like, even if he says, like, well, look, I, if I change this one thing, it'll change all this other stuff. That might even be true. But if he was really a good architect, he could build a better structure overall, even if you're not even aware of how that would be done. It's like, if you were really a good architect, you could have built something better than this, you know, better than hundreds of millions of years of animals ripping each other to shreds, you know, better than, you know, parasitism and carnivory, like, you know, I mean, we also have. I mean, it's equally worth saying that there is also hundreds of millions of years of animals flourishing and living, uh, like you know, free That's an life. Interesting question. I mean, I have, I have no idea. Like, I remember asking people this. Like, do you think there's been, you know, regardless of your <clears throat> opinion about like pleasure and pain and like, you know, the ontological status of these things or whatever, just like as an empirical question, do you think there's been more pleasure or pain, you know, among sentient creatures? in the whole history of, of life on earth? Like, is it about equal? Is it way more pain than pleasure, way more pleasure than pain? I, I truly have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I think it's it's interesting to say, like, it's obviously it would be very difficult to quantify. Uh, utilitarians mm -hmm. cry, cry your eyes out. But the, the, the you know, the, 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 but I think in terms of the success of nature, which is what I, I would be most concerned with, like the success of life, um, it it seems to me to be very heavily on the side of that. Actually, this functioning is is very 
well received. It, it actually does. It's spread throughout this entire planet. Life spread throughout this entire planet. It will, if we try and blow it up, it will still continue. Uh, identities will proliferate. You know, reason will essentially uh, replicate itself, and it will uh, uh, attempt to self-actualize in a greater and more complex way. And so, like this, like I would be very hard to imagine a mechanism which would create a complex, an ever-increasing complexity of self-actualization to produce a more and more stable identity than what naturally occurs. Uh, and and th that's what I think really teleological like, theology is about. It and this is the whole thing. Like when we look at someone like Aristotle, who really sort of kicked the ball, like you know, sort of got the ball rolling with teleology. It is about this attempt to actualize your final cause, which is, um, which is the the most causative state of being. It's like the most fundamentally perfect way in which you could be, um, and it seems that that would mean a mechanism through time, if that would constantly improve upon itself, re adapt to its environment, um, and uh, essentially relate to itself in such a way as to become better and better. And and I think that's what we see in terms of like, whether we agree that whether more or less suffering was required. I, I mean, I don't know whether you could have had this sort of mechanism with more or less suffering. I guess that's what I, I, was, I was saying. And, and in relation to the architect, I mean, I don't see a, like when I look towards nature, I never see, I don't see a broken house. You know, I don't see a, a, a messed up scenario. I see something awe-inspiring, something beautiful, magnificent. Even I'm like, this is this is this is okay. There is suffering there. There are the you know, there's parts of the house I'd rather not wander into in the dark. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But uh, and you know, in many ways, the Greeks they depicted their gods as natural entities that are just male malevolent. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you can imagine there is a kind of. Um, uh, a, a kind of um, side to nature in which you could depict it as a simply like wrathful and calamity and 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 all this stuff. But so whether I would go so far as to say it's evil, um, I, I don't think I would. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think naturally, I mean, natural evil, I wouldn't say is an evil in itself. Because when we look at an evil, it is a deliberate irrationality. It's intentional irrationality. Where if anything, with nature, it seems very much um, necessary rather than unnecessary. That everything in nature has a, uh, you know, fits the, the a sort of logical mechanism, which is allowing the procure the, the, the constant proliferation of freedom and identity. Um, well, I, it's certainly unnecessary suffering in nature. I mean, like a few years ago, there were forest fires that ravaged Australia and there were literally millions of animals that burned alive there's nothing necessary about that it didn't contribute to anything i mean literally millions of creatures just you know i mean it's just it's so obviously pointless the world would obviously be better if that hadn't happened. i mean you say that but like look at it like this like we could we could say the same thing about let's say the one one major natural disaster was it was a bunch of microorganisms that started producing oxygen at the again at the beginning no, of i don't think that's the same thing as a koala bear burning to death <laughs> well i don't and know because it, po it poisoned like the majority of life on earth and killed it like uh, they I, I mean 
so I mean, nature is very awe-inspiring and beautiful in many ways, but there's also, like I said, teleological evil, like in the form of the North American short-tailed shrew, which paralyzes its prey, keeps it alive, and grazes on it while it's still living for days. I think it'd be better if that kind of thing didn't happen. Uh, I mean, you know, I would, I would certainly say, like, there is, a, there is a point in which we could even say, like, even if, let's say, we we were to say, like, you know, perhaps there is a better way in which we could envision nature. Um, I'm not saying that, like, you, you know, one, I think that we would have to say in relation to a sort of moral agreement, and I think the problem is, is that we can't just look at it, and and this is me point. I'm not saying that we couldn't do anything in relation to nature and that we don't have responsibility, right, for one. Uh, because I I, do, I I think the exact opposite of that. But if we'll, if we'll look at the, like, and I'm not saying nature is perfect in the sense that it, that, you know, because if it was perfect, it wouldn't be trying to improve and create. Like, it, the, the identity would already be structured and stable. And so it, it would be, if it was already perfect, then the teleology of nature, would there would be no teleology of nature, right? Like it wouldn't be teleological. It would already be self. It would already be perfectly self-actualized. It wouldn't be changing. It would be. Un, it would well, be like God. Right? I mean, let me clarify something about teleological evil, because all I mean by teleological evil is just that there's some kind of purpose or function in nature, and it seems like the end is to produce suffering. Like that's all I mean by it. So, you know, like um, yeah, I gave yeah. the example of of predation, but um, I just feel like there's something that we're not connecting on. Uh, I think it's probably metaethics. I think it's probably metaethics if I'm if I'm honest. I think that we're coming from a different metaethical framework, like in what you think of as good and what I think of as good, um, uh, and 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 evil in that. I think that's probably maybe it. And before, and I, I get what you think is teleological evil. I understand that. Um, what I was saying in in relation to sort of teleology in general, there is that teleology is around, um producing a certain end that is sort of um formally necessary right it's it's kind of like a, it's a final cause if you will like it's the end cause it's the goal in which an identity is actually itself uh if you look at sort of aristotle and the sort of basis of teleology that's what really it is it's it's a, it's 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 a self actualization it's a uh, and so like if it was perfect if nature was in a state of perfection it would be un, unmoved you know, like that's why they would say like God is teleologically perfect. He's perfectly actualized. Well, you know, I'm not suggesting it should be perfect or there should be no suffering. I'm just pointing to, you know, so like a river, someone can drown in a river, but that doesn't mean that the river is evil or something, or it has like a malevolent function. It's like, no, the river is not evil. It doesn't have a malevolent function, but you know, fangs and venom, like those are like, they, those have functions that are like intended to be malevolent. So if we were kind of reverse engineering things, and we're looking at like a designed system in nature that appears to be designed for harming other things. What would we say about that designer? I mean, we wouldn't think, oh, I know, perfectly good. Like, no, that would be a crazy inference to make from seeing teleological evil, like seeing fangs and venom and predation, um, you know, physical and psychological attributes that are like well suited for causing suffering. It's like, more of like we would never of infer that the designer was good from those I things. Think I get what you're saying. I get, I look towards a similar sort of thing and it's not about, uh, you see, I don't think that it's bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with things like fangs and venom necessarily in themselves because the, the if you look towards the reason they've developed, it is the 
proliferation of the identity of the freedom of that being right it's the continue like it, it is like it's it's it has developed in order to create a being which will survive um reproduce uh, it, uh you know essentially exploit resources and and continue um i think the issue is is that it runs directly contrary to another being who is doing the exact same thing <laughs> you know the rabbit doesn't really benefit from fangs and venom right like from the snakes fangs and venom and and, and so there are these like sort of conflicting teleologies within nature and so when we look at the telos of nature it, it becomes difficult to almost sum it up doesn't it because it, you, you kind of go like well you've got this rabbit whose flourishing is its survival, its reproduction and, and so on. And then you've got the snake who is, you know, it's, it's flourishing, it's, it's survival, it's reproduction and so on. How does the snake continue on? It kills the rabbit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, well, this is, I think if I, if I take what you're saying seriously, then it becomes very difficult to compare different worlds and say that one is better than another because you can have one world where, you know, different creatures are, you know, enacting their teleological ends and that's happening in both worlds. But in one world, uh, there's no predation. You know, everything is like uh, it, everything is vegan or something. And then in the other world, everything there's lots and lots of predation. Which one I mean, of those it, worlds is better? It's obviously I, the vegan world. I, I mean, I, I would I would concur if we could look towards a world that was, let's say, like it, it was a, a world in which we knew the beginning and end of history. Right. You know, we could see the full picture um we could see that this isn't going to lead to sort of worse outcomes that there will be greater flourishing that identities will you know freedom will self-actualize in more complex and you know various ways in the exact I, same I think way you can still have freedom even if everyone is a vegan <laughs> you can still self i mean i i think freedom <laughs> freedom for for humans is directly to be a vegan right like but i mean like in terms of but if, when we talk about the what i'm talking about is the the sort of sustenance of identity, the continuation of an identity, the uh, the the developing complex complexity of identity, as to such to to sort of being drawn towards the the sort of perfection of 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 God, right? Of a, of an infinitely uh, complex identity which knows itself as itself for all of eternity, right? If we're talking about like essentially something like that, would a world that was free of predation be capable of that? I mean, I, I mean, the the thing is, is I would, you know, like the the way that it would kind of, like, there's the trivially, I would I would have to say no, right? Because God would have done it, you know what I mean, or or He might have done it, you, you know what I mean. So trivially, you say like, oh no, but I, I have absolutely no idea from the perspective I'm in because I, I, there is no way really to know, um, because what what's be, what's being asked of you is if you were God, and you know you could you make a better world now if i was god could i make a better world i, I doubt it I, I really i really doubt it uh but the 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 um, okay let's let's imagine everything is the same but you just start subtracting certain things like there's a fawn that burns to death in the forest no one sees it no one knows about it you just subtract that is that world better I'm, 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 I don't know. It depends like, yeah, of it's how <laughs> it's a better it, it, world. It, 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 you, you say that, but you don't, it, it's kind of like, you know, when we talk about like chaos theory and, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and a hurricane hits the coast of Australia and you may be like, oh, well, wouldn't it be better if there were just not a butterfly there? Like, I don't know at what point we can say that 
the culminative effects of the existence of various identities would make sense. And then it's also talking about like you, subtracting I mean, you must, things. You must lead a pretty anxious life if you're worried about like things in that sense. Like how how could you make oh, no, moral no. judgments? I mean, take... I do live I do live a very anxious life. It has absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with that. Like you know, like well, but... like I mean, if you're gonna invoke something like the butterfly effect, and how do you just make ordinary moral judgments and take ordinary moral actions? How do, how are you I'm not responsible frozen I'm, in like I'm moral paralysis? If you're no, like, what if I do this and it leads actions. to this and it leads to that and it leads Sorry. to that and then everyone's dead. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I guess I, I I don't see it like that. Obviously, there is macro. Like I'm I'm really not saying that in terms of macro versus sort of micro level um, effects. Um, that there isn't obviously like the like you know there's a big difference between I don't know getting in your car one day uh, and driving down the street at a reasonable speed uh, and speeding down the street drunk. Uh, you're in a car in both scenarios, um, but the the sort of macro change there is going to make a hell of a difference, right? Like, uh, well, not maybe it's good of... to drive drunk because you'll cause an accident that'll lead to something that'll lead to something that'll lead to the best possible outcome. Yeah, so how can like, you really say it's bad? Like, I, I I don't think that's exactly what is is being meant here. Like, what 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 I'm what I'm trying to really express is to say, like, if we're looking at the the sort of state of nature. I don't think that one we should look at like say God intervening in a supernatural way, um, because I think that doesn't make sense. I don't I don't think miracles are supernatural. I think they're perfectly natural, and I think it is when we talk about like sort of teleology, it is nature as it should be. So what we're talking about is God producing nature as such to be, so that the 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 the, the fawn wasn't in the woods ready to burn to death, you know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're talking about is how what would actually have to be done for that to be the case well i mean like, you it's could, not you like create you a different just... causal web for one but there are so many christians yeah. who say god you know reminded me where my car keys were well then why doesn't he just you know tell the fawn just give it an instinct to turn left instead of right and then it doesn't burn to death if you can if god can tell you where your car keys are open up a parking space for you then surely he can prevent you know <laughs> like animals burning to death in a forest fire I think that some Christians are, are are somewhat exaggerative when when they when they talk about divided. No, they, they, some of them do mean that. I know that. No, I, I'm not saying. That, I'm not saying the don't. I'm saying like I, I question as to whether. I'm not saying that God couldn't tell them where their car keys are, but I'm not sure whether we need give that divine sort of uh like you know like you know it was it was it was the will of god to find my car keys you know i i, I god give you reason and memory uh, and so on like you know but whether whether he necessarily gave you that specific uh moment of inspiration yeah. it's is certainly a strange place for god to intervene of all the places he could yeah. intervene. the holocaust the holocaust no but <laughs> no, you get no, your car keys yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> like you know like um yeah i guess like there's uh there's there's points in like obviously I, i'm very much for the fact that god doesn't intervene for freedom as well like i don't think that god just intervenes in the world in such to sort of rid it rid it of um sort of evils because of the, the need for freedom i do think that that's that's uh that's required and i even think that evils the overcoming of evils can be required for freedom like uh certain evils um I mean, sort freedom of is good. I, i'm you know I, I think freedom is a good thing but i think you can have freedom 
without the kind degree and distribution of, of animal suffering in our world. Like you could create a different causal web and, and if God is in the habit of intervening sometimes, then um, he could intervene <laughs> um, in yeah. some ways that would really help. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, I, I guess I do not know. I mean, like, like you know, there are the the, the impacts of certain suffering in the world, the the sort of the the chain in which it, it it sort of occurs in the way that it relates to the proliferation of freedom. I'm not sure if I could say that, like, from like it, God could just create a different causal web and it'd be as as good as this. I mean, trivially, obviously, I have to say he he wouldn't or he'd have done that. Do you know what I mean? But. I, I, again, it, it's not, I'm not saying that, I guess what I'm saying is that we cannot know. It's not simply that I cannot know. I don't believe you can know either. I, I think that this requires a level of abstraction about a sort of universal mode of causation in which we can see the actualization of, of, of an entirely better universe. Uh, I just, I, I think that just goes beyond what we're capable of as moral agents, at least at this point in time. I mean, I think that all I'm really asking people to do is to rely on like those cognitive and moral faculties that we rely on in every other circumstance. Like you said earlier, well, God gave you memory and reason. And it's like, well, apparently he didn't want us to use our reason in this circumstance because now you're just retreating into radical skepticism and saying, well, how can we really know oh, if these no. things are good or bad? Well, oh, no, we no, have no. cognitive and moral faculties that we absolutely if, can trust. And that's all I'm using. The deer. If you can save the deer. It's very different than God created nature as such that the deer would have never been hurt. Do, do you know what I mean? There's a big difference there. Like, giving you the, the 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 possibility of reflecting upon nature and attempting to uh, improve it from within, if anything, is, uh, I think, a good thing. And I was, that's why I was saying, like, I do think we have responsibility to nature. I do, uh, you know, I take the, the sort of divide, the cultural mandate, the stewardship over nature seriously. Like, I do think that's a good thing. Um, and I think a necessary thing, if anything, it, it seems that we are nature coming to know itself in such a way as to recognize its own contradictions in order to resolve itself towards freedom. And so like that, that to me, uh, shows that we are, um, if anything, we have a responsibility to step in, uh, and, and aid nature on its course. So like, you know, if we can prevent, you know, like if, if we can direct the flow of lava or something away from uh, a bunch of animals, great. You know, if we can stop a forest fire um, and certainly not cause them, uh, then great. You know, that, that's, not the, that's not the point I'm making. What I'm making is that in terms of the way in which the nature itself is structured, whether nature was structured in a radically different way, would it be better or worse? That's what I don't know. In terms of our intervention in nature, do I think that we could intervene in a way which would be more or less positive? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think that when this starts to sort of become uh, intermingled with the problem, is uh, in, like, for example, I had a conversation with uh, David Pierce, who was like head of the Transhumanist Society, and he's very much about genetic engineering, right? He's like, we'll genetic engineer everything right? Like, I mean, fucking everything, right? And he's like talking about gene drives and the proliferating. He's like, we will just eliminate suffering. You that know, he's me out so much. <laughs> yeah, right. So like, that's, that's the, it's like, I, I, well-intentioned, but, uh, you know, you know, hell, the road to hell is, 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 it could be paved with such intentions. So yeah. uh, th th that's where I, I start to say, it's like, right, would this be better or worse? Uh, and, and, and I think yeah. that requires a level of moral discourse um, which we haven't had yet, or we're not really capable of having yet. 
Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think that the point about stewardship is um, great. You know, I feel like if we are supposed to be stewards, like if we're charged with that, then that surely involves treating animals well and like not torturing them to death. And um, so I think that most Christians are just terrifically failing at the charge they were given to be like good stewards. Um, so yeah, I think that's commendable on your part. Um, I wish more Christians thought like that. But um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, the, something you just said reminded me of that video about wild animal suffering I made. Um, you know, Dustin Crummett and I were kind of disagreeing. It turns out we didn't disagree as much as it seemed like at first. But um, when you hear, like, if you listen to podcasts about like wild animal suffering, you'll hear stuff like what you just said, like, oh, let's use gene drives to get rid of predation or something. And then like, you know, in that context, I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> like, definitely don't get rid of that stuff for the reasons that you're saying. It's like, these things are connected in a way that we don't understand. And it's insane to just twist the, twist the dials like that and think that everything's just going to turn out okay. Yeah. But I'm saying that in the context of these are the laws of nature that we've been given. Like, this is the natural world and the ecosystem that we find ourselves in. And we have the limitations that we have. So from God's perspective, this unlimited being, you know, who has like all the power in the world and is like much, much better than I am or any other human. It's like, okay, well, that's different. If we're talking about an unlimited being, he could have created a different natural world. He could have created a different causal web. But if we're talking about limited human beings, just like dramatically altering the causal web and being like, oh, I'm sure it'll all work out great. It's like, no, that's, a, that is a very different situation. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with like minor interventions though for like reducing wild animal suffering. It's just when you listen to like podcasts and stuff, they always lead with these flashy claims about like gene drives. And I'm like, please don't do that. Um, yeah. But if you're just talking about like, I don't know, vaccinating bears or something, then like, yeah, sure, let's do that. Or like yeah. killing flesh eating bacteria. Like, yeah. Only catch and release, uh, you know, you know, and things like that. Uh, you know, as well, it's it's the kind of thing that with like ecologists always for for some reason ecologists always manage to intervene in the worst possible ways. Like, so for example, the you know the the, the it always seems to really uh, you know it always and I, you know actually Slavoj Žižek I think made it makes a made a good point about this where he's like environmentalists like sort of ecologists he's like it's 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 all what he doesn't like about it i mean he's not even a vegan right like what he doesn't like about it is that it's always anthropocentric it's always like oh because it's our habitat it's you know it's you know and, and it always has to come back to us and if you look at the way in which we do environmental sort of interventions it's like hunting for example it's like because why because it's cost effective it can make the government money you know you can sell you know uh, essentially a, a way in which to you can profit from the exercise people will pay to go and murder animals you know uh, and and so if, if you uh, you know it, it mightn't be the most sustainable sustainable thing um uh, and in many ways they're actually doing something which seems to go radically against um the sort of natural ecology which is survival of the fittest and extinction of the weak rather than the direct deliberate killing of the strong so you can put them on your wall um you know so it, you know there are like um the way in which we in intervene right now i think is is sort of twisted in in very many ways um but i see what you're saying in the sense that you, what you what you're saying is that there is a you know not talking about like um sort of small interventions which could be moral uh but rather like at the level in which we are already in a causal sequence what you're talking about is the 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 
the the the the, the creation of the sequence itself um uh, and in which case you'd have to be able to to essentially imagine a greater model or a superior model of cause and effect logical cause and effect from the point of absolute particularity uh towards absolute universality in a way which is sort of logically interlaced to produce a a, a coherent identity um i, I mean I, I i still don't think that i i don't think that we have the capacity to do that i think for the very reason that like don't get me wrong i can see that we are more limited than the divine like you know but it is in those limitations where it's what i'm being asked to question is like it's kind of like i feel like i'm like i'm a kid who's been you know shown like a, a sort of maths equation and i'm like well why did you write it like that that just seems like the long way of going about it right like you know what i mean and it's like i have no idea what's even being written like do you know what i mean like i i, I, I might like it's not to say that you're wrong because i don't think we could know if you're wrong uh do, do you know what i mean and i think that this is the point of faith where it's this is where you 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 know faith in god is the faith that you you know not only will we reach this level of freedom but that you know this was all meaningful um uh yeah um i mean i think it has to be meaningful i guess but like whether it was the the greatest or the best of all possible worlds i think that that requires more faith than than knowledge i think because you would have to the only person that could verify or falsify that really would be the divine you'd have to have omnipotent omniscience so yeah i guess that in just in relation of what we've been speaking about i guess that the only way that we can kind of resolve this is to talk about whether it is trivially true that this is the greatest of all possible worlds so whether god is necessary and also maybe even just touch on what you think is good and bad in the first place so just sort of metaethically like uh what what do you think of as good and bad and why um well i mean as for the first issue i think you can be a theist and believe this is not the best of all possible worlds actually i think it's if <laughs> i think that's kind of required almost like um because I think this is all, like self-evidently not the best of all possible worlds. And if theism requires you to believe that this is the best of all possible worlds, then that's really bad news for theism. But I think theists have argued pretty convincingly that you don't have to believe this is the best of all possible worlds. Um, maybe because there is no best of all possible worlds, or maybe because God could have morally sufficient reasons for not creating the best of all possible worlds. Um, anyway, so... I'd, even if I were a theist, I don't think I'd believe this is the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, so. I find that a bit confusing how you could have a morally sufficient reason to create something which wouldn't necessarily entail it just being better. Did you know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, this yeah. is it, yeah. And I also think that like that we would be sort of locked into saying it's the best of all possible worlds, not because of and, and it, like you could say that the best of all possible worlds um, uh, allows for freedom, which like for example. You could have said that like in in a world in which we had acted better it could have been better but in a world in which god has allowed for freedom we have chose to make this world not as good as it could have been for example the existence of the holocaust and things like that like i think we could have said we could imagine a world in which hitler wasn't an absolute dickhead and you know like the, the, the you know like you know it, it's a very uh, funny description of hitler <laughs> yeah yeah so uh you know we could do that and um what a jerk well yeah like what what a nasty guy like yeah exactly but the 
you know, we could imagine that these, um, you know, the, the, you know, these individuals who are evil and, and, and even just in our day to day lives, you could imagine that if I had have chosen to be a better person, would the world not be a better place mm-hmm. if my, my actions are more, are morally relevant? <clears throat> yeah. That's sort of what I mean by like better, you know, morally speak, like morally sufficient reasons maybe to allow freedom. So it's like the greatest conceivable world, you know, this is obviously not that because, Maybe if you're if you think there's this like conflict between freedom where you need to have, you know, the freedom to do evil things, it's like, well, the best world would be one where we have freedom and we just always freely choose to do the best thing, <laughs> you know. Um, but like maybe I don't know. I mean that that seems like it, it would be It sounds like that it's it sounds like that's not God actualizing the world incorrectly, but rather us as well. And it shows that maybe it's that the 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 that in terms of our relation to creation if the world if we are free is to show our authorship in relation to how we produce the world and i think that like that actually directly links like i do think uh, i want to point out i do take the bible as a story i'm not saying that this is like genesis is literal here so please don't think i'm some mm-hmm. sort of creationist here where i'm the world was made and so you know um uh but when you know in the bible story of like in the in eden when adam's you know god tells adam to name everything um, I think that that's fitting to what we do. That is our role. Our role is to essentially to provide an essence, an understanding of the thing that God has created, right? Like it's an epistemological role. Um, and that's that's essentially part of our freedom. It's a, a you know, and, and often when we do that to ourselves and we do not see the world as it should be and how we should be, then then we are morally imperfect. And it's this relation to essence and existence that I think that is this attempt of like, not just nature, but the all ethics to to essentially resolve. And I would say that's resolved in God, the perfect unity of et- essence and existence. But the but in humanity, it's not. So you could imagine that, you know, for freedom to maintain itself, there will be some level of um, essentially. Uh, moral there will be moral qualms on our part we will diminish the character of the world to such a degree in which it is we could see that it is morally relevant to not have a, a better world if you will um but then obviously i do think that just it, it's sort of semantics because it would be the better world because without that freedom we wouldn't be able to progress on and yeah, uh, and actually, yeah. for a greater good you know yeah something like that but i do i mean un, i mean relatedly i do think that there have been pretty interesting criticisms of the idea that there just can't be any best of all possible worlds because you can always add to the goodness of a world so if you have a really really great world you can always add to the goodness of it so there is no like top of the pyramid here like there is no best of all possible worlds like at some point when god's creating the world he's gonna have to cut things off because it could always be better you know because you could always add to it um i don't think that that really you know so some people present this as if it's like like it has bigger implications than it actually has. I mean, cause obviously like the world could be better than it is right now, <laughs> like quite a lot. So like, yeah, maybe there is no best of all possible worlds, but like surely God could have done a lot better than this world. I mean, I don't, it, I don't, and... I don't know. I, I don't think I would, I would say so. I don't think that we could even say that he could have done better or worse. I don't, I think that's, I don't think that we can give that. I don't think that we have the necessary, um, mechanism as i mentioned earlier which i would obviously just sort of circle back through the arguments again um but i guess like the the only thing i will say is like in terms of the sort of addition that we could talk about you know add on top of the pyramid 
um i think that, that that's a very temporal conception of 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 uh like a very linear conception of the infinite right and if we take the infinite actually to be a complete set and we take the world to be a complete set which is um a unity of itself in history right it is the unity of temporality of space time of of, of creation you know throughout all of its actual points um i i mean then it starts to i think then it starts to say like could we add more or less um because adding more mightn't be more you know we could put more in but whether that's going to it's going to be equal because it is always going to equal itself right because its identity will be one not necessary and the infinite will always be a, a, a accountable to one which is kind of like how thomas like saying thomas as if i'm a, I'm, a, I'm his friend uh aquinas uh says like you know when god takes like you know like looks at the world it sees it in its simultaneity as as a single complete thing he sees the universe and i think that's the position in which god would have creation right it's the unity of creation not like in its a, a not in its a temporality but in its in its absolute you know in the unity of its temporality and its a temporality so throughout all of time as a single unified um um uh, being or set um but i don't think we could necessarily say that that would just simply be improved by making it a linear sequence of like n plus one and n is happiness and you know we just add a happiness so well, maybe or, not or, happiness but maybe like you know human beings are valuable you could always add another person yeah yeah that, that's add the thing I, I think this is the thing is is that this, i think it leads towards a, just a sort of uh, a temporal like a linear conception of goodness and i think that that's a very that's a very human thing to do a very human thing a way to see it you know what i mean um well i don't know what's wrong with it though i mean like if human beings are valuable you know and if you if like a billion human beings you know that's a more valuable world than a world with 10 human beings and like you could always just add to that because numbers can go on infinitely so you can always add to the number you can always add the number of uh, human beings and it would just be a more and more valuable world so that does seem like oh well, yeah there can't be any best of all possible worlds like any most valuable of all possible worlds because you could always add to the value by adding a moral agent adding like an image bearer or like adding something that we would agree is very valuable and you could just increase the number of those things i i wouldn't i wouldn't agree to say that like humans are valuable just simply in a numeric sense because like, i think that like, it's quality and quantity right and i think that they are they are essentially the like when we're talking about this we're talking about the same sort of thing and what we're talking about is the expression of humanity um and the expression of how humanity relates to identity itself and whether this world better brings glory to god whether it actualizes the 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 actualizes the its identity in such a way as to be perfect um which i don't think more like you say you add more humans but humanity is less stable or you know what i mean in the same it's not about it's not just about how many humans you have it's about the the species of humanity and how it how it's in how it's how it actually functions um well i did kind of avoid your first question um about about yes yes you did yeah i mean we need to talk about the necessity necessity of god i suppose as well but we're gonna get really low on time so like go go for metaethics quickly and then maybe we'll have five minutes on the necessity of god Okay, uh, really quickly, um, there are objectively right and wrong answers to moral questions, and I think this is very obvious. There, that's my very quick. Um, okay, um, I mean, I agree <laughs> with you, but like, um, I, I guess, like, what what do you take to be 
uh, good and bad or right and wrong? Like, and how, like, well, how do we judge those metrics? Well, I mean, I think the list of good and bad things is like fairly expansive. Like there's no particular normative theory that I subscribe to like, oh, this is the correct normative theory. Like, I think these are kind of human constructions that do a pretty good job of capturing the good, like in many cases, but I don't think any of them are perfect. Like, I don't think um, like utilitarianism or deontology or virtue ethics or like any of these proposed normative ethical systems are perfect. Um, like they all are kind of like approximations and they're pretty good guides to the good in many circumstances, but um, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, there is, you know, like, some things are good and other things are wrong. You know, like certain acts can be right or wrong. Um, and this just seems to me as obvious as like some things are logically incoherent and some things are like, um, you know, like that's the right answer to a math problem. And it's like, well, yeah, and there's the right answer to like a moral question. Like, is it good, bad, or neither good nor bad to torture babies for fun? Is it good or is it bad or is it neither good nor bad? Like, that seems like as obvious of a question as you could be asked. And it's like when it comes to, oh, but what's the ontology of that? Like, what's, what's the metaphysics of that? It's like, well, that's almost less important to me than just getting the right answer to the question. It's like, if you say, if I say two and two equal four and you say, but what, what you know, are you a Platonist? Are you a nominalist? Like, what, what are the metaphysics <laughs> of, of math? It's like, well, I don't know exactly. Like, I have an opinion about that. Um, but I, we don't have to worry about whether two and two equal four. Like it's, it, they definitely two and two definitely equals four, and it's definitely wrong <laughs> to torture a baby for fun. And I like agree. I think I have a convincing metaphysical account of that called moral non-naturalism. That's like pretty well subscribed, you know, among you know different philosophers, was, including I, I atheists. Thought you, I but, thought you would be a moral non-naturalist with the way yeah. you're talking. Like I, I, I <laughs> guess that uh, kind of intuitionism. It's yeah. like, it's almost as if my hands are before my face, isn't it? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess like, obviously I, I do not subscribe to that, uh, but I agree in many ways that I, I do think that the, because I, I mean, I'm a moral naturalist. I'm actually, I'm actually a moral naturalist. So, but mm -hmm. the, I, I think that the, 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 some things it does seem like very, I think intuitive, intuitively wrong. And I think that the, the I think more or less so to a developed mind, as in like as in like you know when you've had education, whether you come from a more advanced civilization, you know if we look back in human history, perhaps in the Stone Age, I could imagine like some of these moral issues would conceptually go conceptually beyond, um, you know the 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 the, the moral actor, um, and I think that that's so obvious now because of the development of of ethics within and our, with and our ethical intuitions are the result of that uh, of within our institutions right but then the problem is is that it, it seems to be you end up with this sort of tautological account where it's like uh, you know it's good because it is good and I, I can see it um do, do you know what i mean where it's a, it's a, it's esoteric rather than you know apodictic you know you don't get this point of going like clearly it is good and and what happens when you have people who whose moral intuitions differ on this. Um, even if it's someone in the same society, but they subscribe to a different, with a different way of thinking and their moral intuitions, you know, very, uh, even ever so slightly, it does lead us to question of like, well, what is it that we are perceiving and how do we mediate between these actors? Because obviously we can all agree 
on sort of like your sort of most moral qualms where it's like torturing babies is wrong that's not really a problem and i and i'd like to hope that and i would say that we should be able to educate those who argue otherwise um but the the comes point of how and then two of what is a right right and uh you know like not not just in that scenario but what happens when we hit a genuine moral dilemma um in a more advanced or a more sophisticated um you know uh that there's a tragedy um where it seems that both actions are right or wrong to varying degrees do you know what i mean like uh do i steal um in order to 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 save uh the the you know to to feed my starving children or something like that um it seems that we would all agree that you probably should maybe but then it you know at what point does it become okay to steal and what point does it doesn't it and where do we draw the line in which we take legal action and we do not take legal action against people these are the kind of questions that i think that you're going to need a kind of ontology to, to deal with and i'm just wondering what what how how we identify this non-natural sort of property so there are a few different things there um first uh, you called it tautological in some way i wouldn't call it tautological i'll just call it basic or foundational um like if i'm a foundationalist epistemically and i think that certain moral truths are are foundational and yeah i think that there we i think that we know them through rational intuition which is how we know lots of things um intuition is totally indispensable and people who say that it doesn't matter have no idea what they're talking about um but yeah i mean some of this does come back to like my epistemic views like I, I am a foundationalist and i'm also a phenomenal conservative so i think that someone is justified in taking something as it seems to them until someone gives them a defeater for that so like if someone asks you you know you don't have to justify like basic mathematical truth someone has to give you a reason to doubt them you know you're you're it's okay it's rational actually to accept basic mathematical truths just because they seem right to you and no one gives you any good reason for doubting them um, so I am a foundationalist. I, I don't think it's tautological. And I think that with, you know, I mean, there are lots of things that we know about through intuition. Um, so I'm not like changing rules here or something like in general, I am a foundationalist and in general, I'm a phenomenal conservative. Um, you also bring up moral disagreement. Um, and there are a few different ways, you know, there are a few different reasons people might bring up disagreement. I'm not sure um, what the purpose was um in your case but like you can clarify if, if i'm getting it wrong but some people bring it up like as an argument against moral realism like if people disagree about moral questions then that's somehow supposed to be evidence against moral realism but you know people disagree about historical questions that doesn't mean there's no fact of the matter like people disagree about who shot jfk that doesn't mean nobody shot jfk there was no jfk no one was shot because people disagree about, you know, who shot him. Um, so just disagreement doesn't mean that the subject matter isn't real. That's a weird inference to make. Um, but then there's like a more practical issue that you brought up, which to me seems more in the realm of like applied ethics um, or maybe normative ethics. So I think there is sort of this like uh, these, these like three layers of moral philosophy. Um, the first one is meta ethics, you know, like, are there objectively right and wrong answers to moral questions? You know, there are a lot of meta ethical questions, but the most popular meta ethical question is whether there are like, whether morality is objective or it's subjective or whatever. Um, and then there's the realm of normative ethics. That's, you know, utilitarianism and deontology and virtue ethics and natural law theory and honor culture and so on. Um, you know, these kind of systems. And then, you know, we have applied ethical questions like, you know, veganism or 
uh, drag queen story hour or something. <laughs> it's like you have, and it, it seems like when you're talking about, you know, stealing the bread to save your family, that's like an applied ethical question. And I think everyone can talk about that. Like you could be a moral nihilist, you know, and talk about, should I steal the, you know, bread to feed the family? Like, you know, I mean, most of the moral nihilists I know are like fictionalists. They think morality is like some kind of fiction that we play along with, which I think is totally crazy. But I mean, it, it enables them to, you know, play along with these applied ethical uh, debates, you know. So, you know, the applied ethics, it's interesting, but I just feel like it's pretty far removed from the meta ethical questions, which are quite abstract. I, I guess I, I guess I disagree on that because I mean maybe because I'm a Hegelian and I see this is all very much tied together in terms of the the sort of the processes of of institutions and that the you know for example it is a hermeneutic like for example I, I would argue for hermeneutics in terms of um or, or, or you know methodology towards truth um in which we have this universalized position which is then applied and it, and it's in a constant state of reevaluation and so like i, I wouldn't I, I think that the very fact that there there is an objectivity to ethics points us towards that it is in through the application of our ethical principles that we gain the we perceive the fittingness of you know the fittingness of the concept as as heidegger looks uh, calls it in terms of um the application of the our, our, our concepts how fitting is it is it does it fit onto reality does it actually match the way reality is um and that gives us a level of feedback um of um in terms of like coherence uh logical co correspondence or coherence with reality right like i'm not really that bothered about which an individual is going to subscribe to so much but the but yeah, like I, I, so I don't think that you could necessarily remove these from each other. Um, and so when I say something like, you know, you've got two individuals with different intuitions and you've got to sort of mediate between those intuitions in order to create, let's say, a legal structure. You've got to do it to create, uh, you know, to, 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 to perform the correct moral action. What metrics will they use? How will they mediate these intuitions? How will they have a rational conversation with each other or an intelligible conversation given the fact that they are intuiting apparently two um, distinct phenomenal events. Um, and how does this not fall into a private, you know, into a private system? I guess the way I would see it is that the the structures that we use, the categories are, are universals and that those universals exist in a language in between agents. And that's what allows us to structure our minds. And so our intuitions are shared amongst moral agents. It's not just uh, one intuition is different from another. Um, because the way our intuitions are actually formed is through categories, like the categories of the understanding, if to, to sort of rip off kind of it. Um, and, and I guess what I'm interested in is whether our categories particularly are correct, um, or, or, or uh, uh, is one thing. And then whether our categories universally are correct is another. So whether our moral culture is in a state of ignorance you know, or, or whether we are all in a state of moral ignorance. And, you know, and, and I think we can look towards cultures that have fell in, fallen into that, um, into states of moral ignorance. And then we can see the same thing about individual actors, whether they're in a state of moral ignorance. And how we can say that one person is ignorant or whether one person is actually the future, right? Because like, I'm a vegan, right? So I'd say that 
you know, the, the majority of the population are actually morally ignorant to the, the value of animals, which is why they are continually proliferating their exploitation and harm, right? Like you're buying into an industry which is causing the suffering and death of billions. And I think that is absurd. I think that is absolutely awful. And I will give arguments for that. Um, and I'll do that in relation to the natures of the animals in question, their experiences, um, and the basis of of moral value. And it always ends up somehow ending up back to metaethics as well. And why should I even care about others? And why should we care about animals and so on? But people don't even see that animals could possibly be valuable moral patients sometimes. Um, so you get people who are like animals are valuable, but kind of cognitively, cognitively dissonant, where they ha they hold contradictory views. And then you get other people who simply will just be like animals don't have value. I don't understand what you're saying. I only care about humans. Um, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? So it, I guess my point is to say, like, given that we can actively see the variety of intuitions, how do we like not fall into kind of uh, a kind of like uh, morality or or goodness being a kind of queer metaphysical, like, you know, to to sort of steal Mackey's language, metaphysically queer. And I guess I do actually see, I think that I, I don't agree with Mackey that, you know, nihilists can talk about normative ethics and stuff like that. I think that's just bad faith. I think that they are adopting a language. And I think that it shows, I think, the futility of nihilism more than anything. But the I, I think that it, it they're adopting a language game in order to uh, essentially, it, it's the same thing as David Hume walking out of his house and pretending causation still exists. Um, it's like, well, no, you clearly... And I think it was, I think it was um, Reed, Thomas Reed, who basically responded to him, basically like, well, that's just ridiculous. You clearly don't think causation doesn't exist. You just say you don't think causation doesn't exist. Yeah, Reed had a funny line of like, it's amazing that this really great book was not written by anybody because Hume's not a self, nobody's a self. Like there is no self. He's like, this really great book, just I don't know how it came about, but nobody wrote it. <laughs> I do um, love Thomas Reed. He's he's a, he's a gen he's a gem. Yeah, he's sassy. Um, so it, only the Scottish can be that way. I feel like in <laughs> philosophy, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not going to defend error theory at all. I do think it's. I mean, I think nihilism is about as implausible as it gets, you know, in philosophy. But um, uh, yeah, and it does seem kind of bad faith where they're just like, oh yeah, I don't think anything is right or wrong, but like, don't straw man me by <laughs> assuming that, yeah. I, that that should apply to anything or change my behavior in any discernible way. Nothing is good or bad. Nothing's right or wrong. And if you if you suggest that that should have any noticeable impact in my life, then that's straw manning me. Yeah, that is annoying to me. Um, definitely not an air theorist or sympathetic to it at all. But um. I do, you know, so the more on the moral disagreement point, it's like, um, I think that the amount of moral disagreement is like pretty overblown, um, you know, because a lot of our so-called moral disagreement comes down to disagreement about descriptive facts. And we just don't, you know, we don't all share the same information. Um, we don't all, we just don't all have the same uh, beliefs about, you know, past events and future events and what the facts on the ground actually are. Um, so like, for example, an extreme, um, case of moral disagreement is that, uh, you know, the Aztecs would engage in human sacrifice and we think that's just barbaric and, you know, obviously wrong, but they thought that the sun would go out <laughs> if they didn't do that, you know? <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, if you have to kill one person or everyone on earth dies because the sun goes out, well, I mean, like 
we make calculations like that all the time, like in different contexts where we do sacrifice a few people who are often volunteers even because they think it's a good thing to do, um, where they put themselves in danger, in mortal danger often, to save other people. And, um, you know, I don't think the human sacrifices were volunteering, but they they did believe that if you were human sacrifice, you got like a better afterlife or something. Um, so there was at least that. But the thing is, like, that's not a moral disagreement. That's a factual disagreement about just plain old descriptive facts. You know, like, it's not true that the sun's going to go out if you don't <laughs> sacrifice people. So, I mean, it's not even clear that that's a moral disagreement. Something as strong and striking as human sacrifice from the Aztecs. Like, it's not even clear that that's a genuine case of moral disagreement. Because really, what? it seems like the descriptive facts are doing all the heavy lifting there. What about the difference between vegans and non-vegans? Where vegans, for example, might say I that... I think a lot of non-vegans are totally full of shit. Like, I think everyone knows that animal cruelty is wrong. And, like, it, a lot of people don't want to know that factory farming is animal cruelty. But I think everyone... I don't understand how anyone doesn't know at this point. Um, it's, it's common knowledge that factory farming is, like, this industrialized form of animal cruelty. And everyone knows animal cruelty is wrong. Even these people who are saying they don't care about animals or whatever... Like, if you saw it in front of you, if you saw an individual person torturing an individual animal, any morally normal, non-psychopathic person is going to be disturbed by that and try to stop it. Um, I just, maybe I'm being excessively optimistic there, but I do believe that about almost all people, that they know yeah. animal cruelty is wrong. I would I would agree. I, I have said, um, like, don't get me wrong, like, I think that, I don't think that this necessarily resolves the problem. Do you know what I mean? But I do think that you're right in saying that. I think most people would would have that intuition. And I actually think that that's why we see in slaughterhouse workers. I did a video on this, like called Working in Hell, where I, I went into the, the sort of the psychological, like detrimental effect on slaughterhouse workers. And what we see is that I actually end up with things like psychological doubling because they can't cope with just killing all day long. Exactly. It, it has a psychologically detrimental effect, even to those people who, you know, are capable of, I mean, bear in mind, most people do not, go into this line of work like they, they just will not do it and so the people who end up in this line of work are usually desperate to be fair um but many of them like to become like very cold and hardened to it. they have to basically develop a new persona but it leads to things like alcoholism drug abuse like uh, you know psych like, symptoms as bad as like feelings of disintegration insomnia uh, you, you know, like it's like incredibly uh, psychologically detrimental to an individual. Like where we're seeing what's called it's like pits disorder, um, perpetration-induced dramatic stress, where it, it rivals being like a war criminal. You, like you know, so the 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 actual detrimental effect it has on them is 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 insane. Um, yeah, and any analogy about like oh, well, you know, surgery is kind of gross. It's like, is this happening to surgeons? No. Yeah, no. Like, exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. It's yeah. not squeamishness. It's not squeamishness. It's very exactly. it's, it's it's actually the perpetration. It's the wrongdoing that they're, they're coping with. And if you listen, it it leads to diminished empathy towards humans, uh greater proliferation of, of criminal actions, such as like uh domestic violence. Uh you can actually track rates of domestic violence directly in the area. You can control the controlled for like basically almost everything with like race, like gender like economic you know like you know uh, basically anything that could impact crime statistics and you will still find like the relation of the size of the slaughterhouse um so basically how many employees if you put how many employees versus like how many people have domestic violence um and and assault 
uh, what's it, um, report rates and arrest rates, you see a direct correlation where it it doubles, you double the size of the slaughterhouse, you get double the amount of of, of calls. Uh, so it, it's, it, it is really bad. It is really, really bad. Um, and so I think you're right for the most part, but I don't think it necessarily answers the question, but I don't like in the sense that I don't think it solves the problem, like in meta ethically, I don't think it gets, it, it, it's, I, I think that it, 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 you're right. And I'd like to think that we can overlook most of this. Well, I'm just trying to put the problem to scale. Like I'm just saying, sometimes people talk about like massive moral disagreement and I'm saying, I, I think the moral disagreement is actually pretty overblown. I mean, of course there are psychopaths, you know, in sociopaths and they don't have the same moral intuitions that like normal functioning adults do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's like a disorder. <laughs> like, I don't think, oh, well, we're just different, different strokes for different folks. Like, no, they have a disorder. <laughs> what, what about people who simply refuse to go vegan though then? Would you just say that like, like they simply will not, would you say that they're psychopathic or would you say like, because some no, people won't, I mean, won't they're, not, they're not in the slaughterhouse, you know, like they're, they have enough distance. It's, it's abstracted enough from them that they can kind of pretend, you know, I mean, like when you see people like trying to diminish the vegan like position, then they, you know, they don't talk about animals. They talk about like chicken nuggets or a steak or something. They never, they like, they try to abstract it away from the actual thing that we care yeah, about yeah. euphemisms <laughs> and, and everything yeah you're right yeah yeah, yeah. I, do think so I, I just don't really buy it like i said i think they're full of shit and i i think that michael humor is is right where he says like uh you know lab grown meat and fake meat will become eventually like indistinguishable from um real meat like it'll be like you know molecularly identical and it'll be just as nutritional or you know non-nutritional like it'll taste the same it'll have the same nutritional value and eventually he thinks it'll be cheaper than real meat. And at that point, there will be like a shift, like where people start going for the thing that's cheaper, that's indistinguishable. Um, and then there's also this element of like eco-terrorism that might push things further in that direction as well. But it's also like people will just do this because it's cheaper and because it's just as good and everyone knows it's wrong anyway. And now they have the luxury of admitting that it's wrong. And then yeah, I think that's, that's the generation that's, uh, uh, <laughs> according to humor, that's the generation that will say, What's the I would hell never wrong with our parents? Yeah, yeah. yeah would, how did our parents I would have never be? done that. Yeah. I never ever would have done it. What, what was wrong with our parents? Like, did they did, how could they not see how wrong Mo it was? Morally lucky. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. I think that moral <laughs> luck plays a huge role in it. Like, you know, science were way out of way many problems. It, so. You know, that, you know, it, it, out of all, almost all the problems. Uh, it is sort of sad in that respect. And I guess, like, you're probably going to have to go in a minute. But how do you feel about the argument, uh, just quickly, that um, like the in terms of the necessity of God, I guess like in terms of metaphysics, we probably have a a, a radically different metaphysical outlook. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm I'm a Hegelian, so I think that the sort of categories of the understanding are objective, and so I would say that these that ideas are objective, and the unity of ideas is a mind, and so the unity of what actually makes creation what it is. Uh, points towards the necessity of a of a divine mind. Uh, um, so, how would you engage with that? Would you just say that, like, like you're not like convinced by that, or like in terms of metaphysics, or is it like you've run a totally different metaphysical um, framework? Or 
I mean, I think maybe you and I have more common ground than than you would have with most atheists, I think. Like, I think a lot of the positions that are defended, like, very fiercely by atheists online, I think it's just a matter of, like, historical contingency. Like, there's no necessary connection between atheism and free will skepticism or atheism and nihilism or, you know, like, I believe in free will. I'm a moral realist. I'm a non-physicalist. Um, I believe in teleology, <laughs> like, and I also believe that, I mean, I'm not sold on like a metaphysical necessity, but I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that there's like a metaphysical necessity at the foundation of reality. Um, it just doesn't have to be divine. Like, right. I mean, I feel like that's a step that, I mean, that, that's what's sometimes called stage two of the contingency argument. Like stage one of the contingency argument is supposed to be, there's just like a metaphysical necessity. There's some necessary being. And then stage two is like, Okay, and that necessary being has divine attributes. You know, it's very godlike. Right. Right. And the stage two arguments to me seem dramatically different in quality than the arguments that are in stage one. <laughs> so um, I would separate the contingency stuff and the necessity stuff from your specific like Hegelian brand of it because I don't know what Hegel uh, was saying <laughs> ever. That's, that's, that's <laughs> but, um, but I do, I can understand what Josh Rasmussen is saying about contingency. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Like I can, I can, t like in, you know, at least half the days of the week, I'm like, yeah, there's a metaphysical necessity. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but I just don't, I don't really buy the divine, the arguments that it must have these like divine attributes, but yeah. So I mean, something I totally... like being or, or, or something like that, like sort of uh, where it's sort of abstract being or, Maybe like it's some sort of like uh, maybe level of information or something sort of, yeah, you know, may maybe something like that that sort of underpins like, I, I guess I I'm, I'm very much in favor of a logos. Um, and, I and I think for a logos to function, it requires a telos. Uh, and so there is this unity of, um, you know, uh, first and last causes uh, that I think is essentially that unity at a you know, at a, at a universal level, I, I take to be like a, a God in that. Um, but you might, I, I don't know if you would agree with that necessarily, but you might just say that there is a sort of an indutable foundation, indutable metaphysical foundation, perhaps there has to be something that it's sort of like, there is a first cause or there's something at the bottom mm -hmm. of this. Um, but it's not necessarily God. Um, yeah. but would you say there's a last cause? Is there something at the end of this? <laughs> no, I think the universe, I mean, if I understand your question properly, then I mean, I think the universe is um, eternal. I mean, definitely in the future. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think there will be an ending. Um, I mean, I'm also pretty sympathetic to the idea of being pretty sympathetic to the idea of the universe being eternal in the past and in the future. But that wouldn't really mean there is no metaphysical necessity. Um, but yeah, I think the universe is plausibly eternal um, in the past and in the future. Do you mean eternal in the sense like... Um, like temporally. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, it wouldn't be temporally eternal, would it? Because like, cause I guess, because it... Uh, do you mean eternal in the kind of way that like, the, you know, it, it you know, like, you know, for example, T1 would persist, uh, but be of a certain spatial temporal position for like, and then you've got like T10, which would, uh, which would persist in its... Uh, and these are connected through let's say like a causal chain let's say of light cones like if we use like einstein and it's actually like a four dimensional uh block um you could see it as and so what we see is this there is this four dimensional plane which persists and events that have happened in that four dimensional plane will always have happened or will happen 
within this four-dimensional plane. Um, is that the kind of way that you're approaching it? Or? I mean, philosophy of time is way over my head. Like, I don't really have strong opinions about, you know, like, oh, are you an A theorist or a B theorist? It's like, I don't know. Um, but I do think that um, that you can complete an infinite series, you know? So I do think that, like, the universe, there, there's this infinite regress of, you know, temporal events. And I also think the universe is infinite in space as well. Um, there's no, like, end of space. And there's no end of time, you know, in, in any direction in both cases. So, yeah, I think there's like an infinite regress of of events in time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, like when we say it as well, like what, I think it's when we look at space and time in general, like it's um, it seems to be essentially just a, a sort of and I think Kant really showed this. It's not that space has to be like it's not like we have to if we zoomed out, there would necessarily be no limit to space. You don't have to say it like that. It's like a priori. There is no limit to space. Like it could constantly go outward. You know, time could constantly add on to itself. There is no reason to say that. I think um, unless maybe like unless the, you know, like the, the, there's people who argue for like in physics for like the big rip or something, isn't that? I'm not sure. I don't know enough about that to say whether it's plausible or not. Uh, but that might be like a kind of uh, uh, a, a sort of refutation of that if that's possible although i don't will ever see it uh, <laughs> you know so but um yeah. but yeah i see what you're saying um yeah i well, guess I, like I would i would like i would the be weather. the same but it's kind of like the weather in michigan where i'm at where they say if you don't like the weather then just wait and it's like um is it just changes so frequently and it's like if you don't like what physicists are saying then just wait because <laughs> it'll yeah, be I mean, next week <laughs> physics physics is wild at the minute i love science at the minute it's actually there's a lot of amazing stuff going on in the in the world of science like in terms of news more than actual changes uh uh you know like you know something comes up as a problem and then the, two weeks later you find actually the standard model still works for fuck's sake it's never <laughs> going to change um and you're just sort of waiting forever for this like when are we going to be like cruising through the stars um but you know like i I think that there is um i, I will say like, i think that there's um like i guess the last sort of thing before we'll call it then it, like just before the, the 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 sort of like when we look at this sort of eternality of time and space and so on it, it's more of like when we say that the there's an end I, I i take that really to be a unity and i think that's what that's really being sort of proposed by like Aristotle, Aquinas, and so on. When we say the end, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's the same thing. When, when for example, Hegel, um, he points out syllogistically, so he talks about an infinite middle term connecting two extremes. So if you had like an infinite temporal series, you could have, let's say, like you could still build a, a thing where it's a complete whole, as you say, a complete sequence, and the unity of that sequence would be its end. Um, you know, and that's where I would, uh, that's what I would say would, would be the, the, when we talk about, you know, in, especially in t terms of teleology, it's not just, it's not a point in which you necessarily reach as much as, a uh, a, a, the, the rational unity of the thing of, of time itself that I think that I'm, I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm meaning in that. Do you think there's that in terms of them? I mean, I'd have to think more about it. I mean, I'm. I hesitate to answer just because I, I can't really concretely imagine um, it, like all the details and features of what you're describing right now. Um, so yeah, I would just remain agnostic until I, I would refrain from uh, having any judgment until I had a better grip on what you're describing. 
yeah yeah that's fair enough that's fair enough um but yeah it's been it's been really interesting it's been really great uh, i really appreciate the conversation um if anyone wants to check out uh emerson's channel as well uh, do you want to ch- want to shout yourself out where, where you where you find you oh yeah um i have a youtube channel called emerson green and i uh started uploading podcast episodes to that like you know kind of later on at first i just had a couple podcasts um you know on itunes and spotify um one is called counter apologetics just talk about philosophy of religion and I've got another one called Walden Pod, where I talk about like most other stuff, usually philosophy of mind. Um, but yeah, I'm into like panpsychism and dualism and mysterianism and, and those kinds of things. But um, also just other like, you know, interests that are not strictly into um, philosophy of religion. So I've got those two podcasts and then um, I most of them end up on YouTube on the Emerson Green channel. So, yeah, and they can follow me on Twitter at Walden Pod. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. I had a had a good time. Yeah, thanks again. Yeah, and and they will be linked in the description below. So do go subscribe. You know, go and show your support uh, for fellow philosophical content creators. Because my God, do we need it? <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and uh, it's been great, man. Uh, I hope to to talk again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Yeah, I'll, we should. I should have you on at some point. Um, we can talk about veganism or something. That'd be really great. That'd be really great. Um, and yeah, like uh, I'm, I'm sure we could probably like uh, go through a lot in terms of uh, even the God side of things more because obviously we've only sort of touched on it like in relation to a very specific question on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that there's a very, there's especially the metaphysics in terms of like the necessity of God. I think there's a lot there. And I mean, there's, I mean, philosophy is a very big subject. I'm sure there's many things that we could talk about as well. So yeah. Or our next debate could just be the motion Schopenhauer was right about Hegel. Oh, oh, don't even, don't even say that. They just they break my heart. And like, you know, no, I, I, I Chopin, Chopin, how it just makes us want to cry. I don't know how anyone can read them and I just want to just like, just like, why do I even like, what's the point of reading them other than to just be sad? Like that, that's, we, could, that's, we could have a debate about it. Cause I, I mean, not his pessimism, but I mean, like, I like his metaphysics. Um, his metaphysics yeah. is interesting. He's pessimistic, but then I then just read. You know, I'm, I'm. I guess you can't just read Nietzsche to get his metaphysics. But I guess like Nietzsche is the non-pessimistic version of that sort of metaphysical commitment, right? Like where he's like yeah. this guy. Yeah, some people think so. Yeah. Do you not no, do I, not agree? Do you think that? No, I, it's just Nietzsche. It's like he's plausibly anti-metaphysics, you know. But then it's like it, if you read him in like. If you like read his body of work, he does seem to have like a metaphysical worldview. I actually posted a lecture by Galen Strassen called Nietzsche's Metaphysics on my personal channel, um, where he goes through what he thinks Nietzsche's metaphysics. And yeah, it is basically like a version of Schopenhauer's worldview. Like it was obviously heavily influenced by by Schopenhauer. Yeah, but... yeah, definitely. I, I do think that he's. I wouldn't say he's anti-metaphysical, but I do think like, and I think that Carefree Wandering mentioned this in response to Jordan Peterson, who sees him as a very individualist. And he's like, I see him as like a pre-postmodernist, I think he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he's somewhere in between. It's almost as if like his individualism has committed himself to the point in which he's like, we are constructing reality around like uh, around our wills. Uh, and this is like this sort of will, like the, the will to power is literally the the will to, it's, it's almost like we are all like, uh, you know, these, you know, Iranian gods uh, you know, we just don't know it yet. You know, we're just so ignorant to our true and essential power. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, but I think it's it's been um, it, it's been really fun, man. Yeah, uh, there's obviously a lot more we could talk about. Um, and I am actually going to be late. So <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm really sorry. Just go run. I'm really sorry. 
Uh, do do pass me apologies on as well, and just tell them it was definitely <laughs> my fault, and I'm really sorry, and I do this every day. Cool. Uh, but but yeah, thank thank you very much, man, and uh, I'll I'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me on.